Well, praise God. Jesus is greater, amen? I don't think you believe that. Jesus is greater, amen? Amen. I thought you, I thought you might say so. Well, I'm uh, very privileged to be here, uh, up here this morning. Boy, it looks different up here from down there. You can try this. It's, uh, it is a different feeling, but uh, a great opportunity always to share the Word of God and so privileged uh, to be able to uh, give our pastor, our preaching pastor, uh, an opportunity for some rest. Although, speaking with him, he tends to use his time very wisely, so I, I'm sure it wasn't sitting out on the back porch. He, well, I do know he was studying through the week and visiting and uh, doing all the great stuff that we've come to appreciate uh, and thank God for. So uh, very grateful for an opportunity to, uh, to share uh, God's word uh, with you uh, this morning. Uh, went to, uh, to New York uh, City last week. It was last week. Yeah, it was last week. And, um, you know, uh, we're, I'm a little overly cautious about, like, the identification stuff. You know, credit cards can be easily canceled and then replaced, but when it comes to things like passports, it's a big deal. So there's a huge emphasis in our travel of making sure that those things are taken care of, they're protected. So even in the hotel room, I like this little secret compartment, secret compartment in my, uh, my uh, luggage uh, to put the, the passports. And, and I think probably what it is most of all is this whole fear of a mistaken identity. You know, somebody takes it and they use, they use my identity, they use my identification uh, for themselves. And... Uh, I never really thought about how bad that could be until you actually search how often people's identity has been stolen. And, uh, and you then turn around and say, well, that's not me, officer. Uh, I didn't do that, or I didn't make that payment, Mr. Uh, bank manager, uh, and so on and so forth. Mistaken identity is huge. I did read an interesting story uh, that, uh, from uh, this past month, uh, May 13th. Uh, actually, a woman in Chicago, she, she received a phone call that no one ever wants uh, to receive. It was uh, from a social worker at Mercy Hospital in Chicago, and uh, they were looking for relatives of a guy named Alfonso Bennett, uh, who just happened to be their brother, her brother. She rushed to the hospital with her sister, and when they arrived, they were led to a room uh, where they met a man who was intubated. They had a, a tube in his mouth, and uh, he was on life support, and uh, tragically had suffered such great damage in a, some kind of a fight or something that his, uh, his face was unrecognizable. It was just an awful scenario. Uh, brought in originally as a, a John Doe, uh, not sure of his identity. The hospital uh, was insistent that it was the brother of these two women, However, when the sisters saw the man in the hospital, they continually and repeatedly expressed serious doubts and uh, that he was actually their brother. But the hospital told them that the police had been there and they had actually run what they thought would have been his face against some mugshots and thought that this happened. It had to be uh, the brother. Despite their insistence, the women were told uh, that this was the case. Now, the usual police procedure was to take fingerprints, but because of certain budget cuts or whatever, they didn't do this. And so here were these women in this hospital room, and they were supposed to believe that this was their brother. Now, the women, although they maintained that the man in the hospital was not who the police, and now the hospital said that he was, they stayed with the man. 
In this passage that we're going to be considering today, it's really kind of like a parenthesis in where we've been already. Uh, Pastor Adam has brought us through the, the beginning of the book of, the, uh, of Romans, and there we've explored uh, the truth of wrath and God's great propitiation is turning away from us and pouring the, the wrath upon the Son. He died in our place and then we are brought to understanding of how we are justified, brought back to, uh, to, to a righteous standing before God. And now we're in this wonderful passage of sanctification. And it's almost as especially considering last week, and if you haven't heard last week's sermon about bad marriage, you've got to actually listen to it. Uh, but last week, you know, as we, we understood that there was, that the, the, the law had this effect on sin, we come to maybe come to the conclusion falsely, as we'll find today, that the law is somehow sin. There would be a, a mistaken identity, and it's not just from last week's sermon. All along the road through Romans, we've seen passages uh, of Scripture that maybe will lead us to think that the law is sin. And, and so Paul is going to deal with that misconception, that mistaken identity this week you want to write this down you can look at passages like chapter 3 verse 20 and there you'll remember that the law shows us sin and that it, it cannot save the sinner in chapter 4 verse 15 we read that the law brings wrath in chapter 5 verse 20 before the law came there were many sinners but only one trespasser adam but when the law comes a whole lot of sinners become trespassers and so the mind goes to the law as being sinful and of course, last week in chapter 7 and verse 5, a bad marriage to the law. The law never able, or sin, sorry, we never able to do what the law demanded. We are found wanting. Have we mistaken the reality, the truth of what the law actually is? Paul will address that for us this morning. Before we go too much farther, let's stand together in honor of God's word. Let's read the text before us. It's Romans chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. This is the word of God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not sinned. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to inform us but to transform us as well father we've been singing about the wondrous mystery of our salvation 
that we as sinners were rescued from the devastation of our sin and raised to life in Christ. Father, we are in him, we are justified, and we are on that road of sanctification that will lead us home to glorification. And Father, it is our desire to know you. And we know you've given us your word to know you. And so Father, it is our plead this morning that the Spirit of God would be pleased today to speak through this speaker. Father, I pray that I would not say anything that will defame the truth of your word, but Father, as the Spirit of God works through me and as the text is lifted from the page to our understanding, we ask God that you will do a great thing and that you will do as you have promised and feed your people. Father, thank you for your word, for its power, for its relevance for us. We ask that you do what we cannot do because we ask it in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So is the law a real problem? Aren't we led to believe that the law is somehow heaped in with the concept of sin is in fact sinful? I mean, after all, Paul restated the truth. Uh, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. We are not justified by the works of the law. Paul will later say in chapter 10 that in theory the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but in practice no human being will ever succeed in obeying the law. The question that needs to be asked this morning as we, we consider the law, maybe you've already been asking the question as we've been hearing preaching through the book of the Romans, is if we are free from the law because we have died to it in Christ, then how can we see it as anything other than bad, really, realistically? Is the law not really just synonymous with sin? And if so, shouldn't we have nothing to do with it? This is the the antinomian way. Should we just not be like Thomas Jefferson and just cut out portions that we don't like, including the Old Testament? Is that what we should do? In verses 7 to 11, Paul here will give us a defense of the law. He defends it by claiming that although everything said already is accurate, our impression of the law may not be. The law of God is good. It isn't sinful, and by extension, neither does it cause sin or death. Uh, he makes it very clear as we begin. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? He doesn't wait too long to tell us again. By no means. In the Greek, miginoito is the strongest Greek negative that Paul could ever have used. Its, its mood tells us that Paul's desire is that no one would ever come to this conclusion. It's horrifying for him to think that anyone would. What we want to see here in our overall idea as we look through the landscape of this short text, but very important portion of Scripture in our understanding of Romans is this. Listen, because God's law is good, then we must know what God's law is good for. This is what Paul wants us to appreciate. The law not only is not sinful, but it is good and continues to have great value for you, for the Christian. 
We're going to look at three different things this morning. We're going to see that God's law reveals sin. We're going to see that God's good law rouses sin. And we're going to see that God's good law ruins the sinner. All that this morning. Let's dive right in. Verse 7, point number one is this, is that God's good law reveals sin. You'll notice how he begins, often passed over the word yet. It's the idea of on the contrary. In effect, the opposite to what you might be thinking is true. The law is, and as he summarizes in verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Because the law is authored by God, it expresses God's standard of righteousness. Essentially, it reveals to us what God is like in his character and can see what sin is like in themselves. Sin being the failure to be the same as God, just to simplify it. So Paul says that it was his exposure here in the text that the, uh, to the law that resulted in coming to know what sin is in the first place. We already have learned from chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that every human being is hardwired. Is that okay to say? It's hardwired with an inner awareness of the law of God. Yes, you have been innerwired with a moral code, a sense of what is right and what is wrong. God has written it on the human heart. The heart being understood, of course, is the the very center of the person, the, the governing core where resides the will, the intellect, the emotion. So, for example, a person doesn't need to have the written law to know that you shouldn't kill somebody. You know that innately without the law. So the law, assumably all of the law, is accessible to a person's conscience regardless of whether they are a believer or not, exposed to the law or not. So then what does Paul mean when he says that he wouldn't have known what it was that that covetousness was sinful unless he had heard the law say, do not covet? Wouldn't he already be hardwired for that? What we have to conclude from this is that Paul is seeing it covetousness as sin. Uh, he'd never seen it as sin in the same sense. It is something different than just knowing, therefore, what is right and what is wrong, like every other member of the human race. You see, for him, there was a moment when he came face to face with the law of God, and a law specifically that called him that called Paul to know inwardly what his condition was before God. And this was somehow different than before. Remember with me that Paul was a self-identified Pharisee of Pharisees. He didn't really hold it back when he described himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained from birth in the strict manner of the law. And would as a young man have studied, did study under the best teacher in Israel, advancing in his own words well beyond that of uh, his contemporaries, zealous for the traditions of his Jewish fathers. You see, Saul, as he was known before he came to Christ, considered himself to be a zealot for God. As to the law, he said, righteous. Like other Pharisees, he lived an externally uh, an external life. 
He lived in the old way of the written code, as we read last week. And for him, the law was a list of rules and regulations. And make no mistake, he was passionate about those rules and regulations. I mean, he was on the ball when it came to living a religious life. But he saw himself, as he told the Philippians, as being righteous under the law, blameless. His desire would be that everyone around him would have had a reason to conclude as they looked at his life that he was godly. Everything in his outward appearance would have all the marks of holiness and in this outward observance to him. That made him acceptable to God. And so it seems hard to believe here as we look at this in verse 7 that Paul is relaying an experience at any uh, one particular time in his religious Jewish life. I think it's not coincidence that Paul gives us a huge hint as to what happened in his life when he identifies covetousness as the commandment that God used to reveal to him his sinful condition. Covetousness, you see, is a purely internal command. As Paul went down the list of commandments that he could follow, could you actually say that covetousness was something that was purely outward? God used covetousness to convict him. I don't think it's coincidence here. You shall not covet stands out from the rest of the commandments because it is overtly internal. You can't see whether it's being obeyed like the others. Unlike stealing, for example, covetousness calls a people, a person, never to desire what belongs to another. How do you, how do you measure desire? If you're really good at acting, you could play that one up pretty well. You'll remember that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to see all of God's commandments, all of the requirements for obedience are that which begins in the heart and not just subscribing to an external conformity. For Paul, what covetous did was opened up for him an awareness, an understanding at some point in his life here we'll find. And what he would conclude is this, and this is really the idea of what co- where covetousness leads us. It leads us to an understanding of what it means to be an idol worshiper. Covetousness is really that which connects directly to idolatry, a love of self and not of God. That's how I would define idolatry. I I place anything above my love for God. Covetousness for Paul was a beeline right for idolatry. Jesus destroys misconceptions of this command by calling people to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness with all of their heart. And so in verse 7, when we come here, when Paul says that he would not have known what it was to covet without the law, this knowing, my friends, is far deeper, more significant than just a sense of right and wrong or that it's commandment number 10 in Exodus chapter 20. This is the commandment that the Spirit of God used to reveal to Saul the sin in his life, that he himself was not good, that he was not righteous before a holy God, that he was not blameless as to righteousness under the law, that he needed your Savior and mine. 
God uses this law to help Paul see that sin is a matter of inward longings and idolatrous motivations and desires. That's where it begins. And everything that you see is an outflow of that. Because God's law is good, we must know what God's love is good for. It is good because it reveals sin in our life. Staying with the idea of New York, uh, one of the things, I'm a, little, I'm a little strange when it comes to this. I, if I could find like a UV light that is very portable, I'd take it with me because I'm just so curious um, in my germaphobe way of what's in the room, right? So self-revelation. I bring like those bacterial wipes with me and before the kids do anything, I do kind of like a sweep of the, of the place. I know it's bad. I, I probably shouldn't do that. It's, it's too much. But, you know, it doesn't help when you tend to watch like those inside edition things, those 60-minute, you know, investigative things. Well, there was one called the hotel sheet test. And uh, you might want to look into it if you're like me. They, uh, the inside edition team, they rented a hotel room. They checked in and then they checked out, and the next day they checked back in again to the very same room. They were curious what they cleaned. Uh, before they left, they took this uh, washable fluorescent paint and a stencil that said, I slept here, and they sprayed over it under the sheet, and then they covered, they, they left the sheets or whatever, and then when they went back um, three times, out of nine, they only showed the three times, you know, for effect, like three consecutive times, but it was really three out of nine, pulled back the sheets, and they had not changed the sheets. They had just made the bed. So if that doesn't give you the willies, but it was not clean. Now, when they, <laughs> they called the manager and they said, why did this happen? They were extremely apologetic. Um, and they said this was not their policy. They, they do clean the sheets after every visit but the under the uv light they could clearly see that the sheets were not clean there was there was i guess not in this case because they hadn't slept in the beds but generally speaking they were dirty they needed to be cleaned you you couldn't see that but under the right light it came to light it, it's refreshing to see here Paul be honest about the reality of his situation, about his dirty life, and to hear how passionate that he is about the law and its power in the life of people. He reveals to us that when it comes to the law, he came to appreciate as the law revealed his sin that he was not right before God. Others may not have easily seen it, but God saw it under the lens of the law. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, Lower the law, and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. I say, he writes, you deprive the gospel of its most powerful weapon when you have set aside the law. This is a very serious loss to the sinner, rather than for gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that, is bring men, that should bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. 
Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose and must not be removed from its place. We need to learn to share the gospel biblically. I think Spurgeon was right. So often we are so afraid of the law because we know that no one is saved through the works of the law that we just dismiss it and say, well, law, therefore, cannot be of any value to the believer. And yet, from the truth of the passage, Paul, with his most earnest means, says, by no means. Don't think this way. The law is not sin. The law is good. Because God's law is good, we must know what the law is good for. It is God's good law that reveals sin. He doesn't stop there. He helps us along to understand in verse 8, we're going to see that God's good law rouses sin. Not just reveals sin, but it does something more. It rouses sin. Notice with me here that Paul uses military language. Might not see that, but... It's here. Sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. The word opportunity is customarily used to describe a military base of operations from which um, someone, a force, would advance their expedition. Essentially, uh, they kidnap the law. Sin kidnaps the law and uses it for its purpose. The law itself remains good. Don't lose this. It is sin within that is hostile to God and uses the law not to create sin, but to agitate it, to rouse it. See, when Paul or any other sinner is exposed to the law of God, the law rouses, it activates, it aggravates, it provokes sin and causes us to want it. Leave it alone, sin is dead. That is to say, it is dormant like a sleeping monster don't wake it it's harmless as long as it slumbers but it's vicious in its wake but when covetousness awakens when sin is awakened paul tells us all i wanted to do was covet When the law, God's good law, aroused sin from its slumber, shone light upon it, the power of sin was awakened. And Paul says later in his writings, the power of sin became the law. Augustine, his classic example of this is when a child, when I, as a, as a, actually as a teenager, he says he's a child, but he's 16, so he's not a child. He's a teenager. Uh, he decides with a couple of friends to go and steal some fruit. Now, he had lots of fruit, and he actually writes that he had better fruit than what he stole, but he actually goes and steals fruit. A and you'd think, well, he must have really been hungry. There were some, some circumstances, but no, not at all. In fact, he just wanted to steal it. He knew he shouldn't steal it, but he writes, I only took them in order that I might be a thief. I threw them away, and all I tasted was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. You see what the law does. The law agitates the sin that is there. It's like you and I, when, when we are exposed to the law of God, and, and God says, do not do it, all we seem to want to do is to do it. 
I still remember as a child, my dad saying to me, I know this is, sounds weird, uh, don't throw rocks at that man's door. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, I, I couldn't help. It came to mind as I was thinking about the rousing of the law. My dad laid a law that said, do not do this. And you can try this with your kids at home if you've got young kids. Don't touch that. All they want to do is touch it. Why? Is there something wrong with your law? Was there something wrong when my dad pointed across and say, I know you're trying to, to throw rocks at that whatever, but you're going to hit the door. Do not throw rocks at that man's door. Such is the perversity of my depraved heart, ruled by sin. As an unconverted person, ruled by sin. When the words of my father, do not, came and rang in my ears, all I wanted to do was exactly what he said not to do. Don't look at me like you haven't. Because you probably have the same story. I had no difficulty understanding the instructions of my father, but I lacked the desire, listen, I lacked the desire to carry it out. All I wanted to do was iniquity. I wanted to carry it without. Something within me drove me to want my sin more than the pleasure of my father. Is this not what Paul is talking about? Is there... If there's something wrong with the root of the tree, my friends, nothing can change it, sort of a divine and supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. He has to change me to want me to want other than what I want. Even the words of a loving father. Sin used the loving words of the father for its own sinful purposes. God's good law roused sin. It's a good thing that God's law does this because without it, we wouldn't get to the next point in verses 9 to 11. There we're going to find that God's good law not only reveals sin, rouses sin, but here it ruins the sinner. Look with me here. The apostle is still speaking, I believe, of the days before Christ saved him when he had an unchanged nature. He was a sinner through and through in need of a Savior. And he says that he was alive apart from the law. Of course, we know he, as a, as a devout Jew, would have known Leviticus 18 and believed it totally applied to himself. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If a person does them, he will live. Ezekiel says the same through the whole ringing of the law through the Old Testament. All points to if you will do this, you will live. Paul found and teaches that it is impossible because of our sin nature to live in accordance with the law of God. But he says here, I was once alive apart from the law. Uh, what makes this a challenge to interpret is that there would essentially have never been a time when Paul, in his unconverted uh, life, uh, ever been apart from the law. Think about it. As a child, would he have been apart from the law? As a young man under Gamaliel, would he have been apart from the law? Uh, as, a, as a religious figurehead, a Pharisee of Pharisees, would have been apart from the law. So almost certainly we can be confident that apart from the law has to mean something other than familiarity. It makes sense to then conclude 
that Paul is referring to having never really been exposed to the law, never really been exposed to law's real and essential demands, never before had his eyes been opened to see the essential truth of the law as it was required. You see, Saul perceived before Christ met him on that Damascus road that he was spiritually alive, but it was his self-perception. He was alive in his own mind. He thought he was alive, wherein in fact, he wasn't pleasing God. He was dead in his trespasses and his sins. What he couldn't see with his unconverted eyes was how much more the law required of him and in turn how inadequate, how utterly in, 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 inadequate, how deficient, how far short of the standard his sinfulness really was. But praise God, in verse 9, he says, when the commandment came, when the Spirit of God enlightened him with a full panorama of what covetousness actually meant to God, and in his life, sin came alive. It sprang to life, and he says, I died. Again, it would have been hard to see the coming of the law as something that happened to him before Christ saved him. This is a work of God to bring him to a full understanding of himself paul here is still talking about self-perception he he thought he was spiritually alive before he came to understand what god expected of him and how unable he was to meet that standard what was the problem here the problem was not the law the problem that paul wants us to know the problem was his sin the law shown in full color by the Spirit of God, comes into view and it was meant to be, as it was meant to be seen and it gave Paul this sense of gravitas, this sickening feeling that you and I who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we know this feeling because it's what we felt when Christ saved us. It's that sense of I am lost and I need a Savior and you run to the Savior. It's at that moment Paul knew this is what it took. God awakened him through God's good law. The law now seen is sin against God and open rebellion against him was that which God worked in his life. Now it's surely a personal experience. Eight times we see Paul using words like I and me, those pronouns draw it home to Paul, but it's really a universal truth, is it not? We can see this in his mention of, the, of covetousness, but his whole understanding, his whole exhortation of the law leads us to believe that we're all with him. We're all standing beside him. These are examples in his own life that lead us to believe that this is true. I wonder how long Paul was struggling with covetousness. Uh, we don't have time to go into it, but take a look at Acts 26. He talks to King Agrippa about when he was fighting conviction. He says he was kicking against the goads. God was was convicting him of his sin? Was it covetousness that was, God was using in his life to, to bring him to that point? Because we read in the Damascus Road, like, here is the Lord Jesus appearing, and you know, what, what will you have me to do, Lord? It seems like there's information untold. Paul was being stoked. The fire was being stoked. Paul was being worked on by the Spirit of God to bring him to that point when he would meet Christ on that road. God is so good. Is he not? 
in his great design and purpose, not short-sighted in the slightest. It was always his intentions to use the law to point the insufficient sinner to an all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus, who completely obeyed the law on our behalf. We see in verse 11, Paul talks again. It's really the same verse with his understanding of deceitfulness. It's almost like he says, here's the reason it was deception. My friends, be careful of the deceptive nature of sin. One of the most shameful aspects of sin is its deceitful character. Think of Eve. When God confronted Eve about her sin, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Deception. Paul says, I was so deceived. Eve did not lack intelligence. I actually heard a sermon one time where somebody claimed that Eve just wasn't smart enough to figure it out. The very character and nature of sin is rooted in its power to deceive. And with blinded eyes and sinful heart, without a Savior, without an ability to reach out to God, we are left in our sins and we are desperate for God to regenerate us and to make us able to see and to give us a new nature. And those of us who know Christ have, have understood what that means because we have received a new nature. We have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And Paul came to know that. And he came to love God's law and use God's law and so should we. Charles Simeon said, none are so blind as to think that they have never sinned, but the generality suppose that they have never sinned in any great degree. Paul came to realize that his sin was deep, but grace was deeper. God's law ruined him in the sense that it revealed how desperate he was. It was, the, it was the sin that killed him, but it was the law that ruined his little world of perfection. You know, I, um, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called inintentional blindness. It happens a lot in motor vehicle accidents. You're driving along and you get to a light and you want to turn left. And you look and you don't see anything. And you turn left and then someone hits you. It's a motorcycle. Where did that guy come from? How did he get there? I didn't see him. Well, you saw him, but you didn't see him. There's this phenomenon they call in psychology this inintentional blindness. You see, we see so many things in our world, and, and our mind is so powerful that we do this, this cognitive thing called ecological validity. We, 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 we take away things that we don't expect are there. This is, if you've ever seen that experiment where you have uh, a circle of people, uh, some wearing black shirts, some wearing white shirts, and uh, you're asked to count how many times the, the black shirts pass the ball to one another, and, and later in the activity you realize that a gorilla, a guy in a gorilla costume has passed by, banged his chest, and then walked off the scene, and you never saw the gorilla because you were paying attention to how many times the balls were being tossed. It was clearly there, but you didn't see it. We needed somebody to point it out or we would not believe them. Our minds are deceived into thinking there's nothing coming when in fact there is, that there's no gorilla in the room, but there is. By the way, your spouse will serve you well when pointing out what's coming. 
just ask about the rental car that we used in New York? How are we to be exposed to understand the existence of our sin? It's God's good law. God's good law, the Spirit of God uses that. So here is my application for you. Do you use God's law in your preaching of the gospel? Do you show people that they are sinners? How will they know that they need a remedy for sin if they don't understand the depth of their sin? They still are in this make-believe playing right and wrong thing where it's, you know, it's okay, you know, we all make mistakes. They don't understand the depth of depravity without seeing it through the lens of God's law. So give them God's law. Spurgeon said, people must be slain by the law before they can be made alive by the gospel. You say, well, yeah, but do you have any scripture for that? Yeah, actually I do. Mark 10. Remember there was the perfect convert. Remember the rich young man? Remember that guy? He comes and he kneels before Jesus. And, and I imagine as, as you look at the passage that everybody would have thought, wow, this is the perfect convert. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit? Look at all I've done. What must I do? And Jesus exposes his sin. Sin that no one else could see. Jesus exposes it when he says, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Is it by doing that? No, Jesus was saying, listen, there's something that is king in your life. No one else can see it, but I can see it. God can see it. The sad story, what looked like a fantastic ramp up to the great conversions that we, that we would expect when Jesus is near yet disheartened. This man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. We need to give people the law. We need to show them the word of God because the spirit of God still uses that to convict the sinner. You know, the Bennett sisters were so confident that the man in the hospital was not their brother and that this was a case of mistaken identity. However, the hospital still insisted and the police still insisted that this was their brother. In the midst of the confusions and the decisions that had to be made, the women, well, they just stuck around. They did the right thing, I think. They they knew that decisions had to be made, but they didn't know that the decision would be so hard when they were asked or told, you need to remove the ventilator. We need to take this man off of life support. It was a hard decision, but the sisters agreed. And the man they believed to be their brother was taken off life support, and 10 days later on May 23rd, this year, he died. As the women were planning the funeral service, to their horror, their brother arrived. Alfonso Bennett showed up at their house. A miracle, you say. No, a case of mistaken identity. The man who had recently passed away was later identified, you guessed it, by fingerprinting what they should have done in the first place. It was a case of mistaken identity. These women were placed in a position where they had to make decisions that they should not have made. If we are free from the law because we have died to it in Christ, how can we see it as anything other than bad? 
Is the law not really synonymous with sin? And if so, should we have nothing to do with it? My friends, have we mistaken the law as being synonymous with sin? Paul pauses in his discussions regarding sanctification and he says, I need to make something very clear for you. If you have seen it this way, you're making a devastating error. A devastating error. Because God's law is good. It is good for us. We must know what God's law is good for. God's law reveals sin. It rouses sin. And by God's grace, we're thankful that it ruined us so that we could be readied by the Spirit of God to bring life and that joy, justification, sanctification, and in a day to come, glorification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to convict our hearts of sin. Father, we think of the believer. Now we have been changed by the gospel. We have a new nature. And Father, we see the law as being precious to us. We join with the psalmist, O Lord, I delight in your law. Father, we see your law as being that which is beautiful, and we rejoice in all that you tell us. Not only tell us about who we were, but what we have become in Christ. Lord, we love your word. We love your law. But Father, oftentimes we forget what you did in our lives through the law by bringing us to that great convicting moment that precipitated our coming to Christ where you regenerated us, you made us new by your spirit and you gave us life. Father, could it be that we have mistaken your law still in a sense that we are not using it? Father, we are not using it as we proclaim the gospel. We are not appreciating it in our own storyline and Father, we are failing to give you the glory that you deserve in our appreciation of its glorious standard. Father, thank you that the law was met in Christ, that he lived what we couldn't live. He did what we couldn't do, and he was punished for what we, what we did in our sin. And thank you, Father, for that which we enjoy today because of Christ. Father, bless us now as we think upon Christ and what he offered in his own life as a ransom for sinners like us. And Father, we pray that you'll Help us to glorify you as we continue to worship in doing so. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said.